It is great to see you this morning. If you're here in person, welcome. Happy New Year. If you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. Happy New Year. We uh, made it, right? 2020, we're here. Good job, everybody. Uh, feels like an accomplishment uh, these days. Uh, of course, um, you get me on a very happy day. Uh, as my Georgia Bulldogs just rolled over uh, Michigan uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, so this will be the very best version of me, all right? Uh, one of, the th of our things we've done traditionally at Mercy Hills, we've kicked off every new year by looking at a psalm together. So we're going to continue that tradition today. So if you have a Bible, tablet, phone, uh, turn to Psalm 103. If you need a Bible, there are tables in the back with Bibles on them. Feel free even now. Just go grab one. If you uh, don't own a Bible or you just really like that one, you just take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, we want to make sure everybody uh, gets, is able to get their eyes on the passage as we walk through it. Now, this psalm is attributed to David. You may know that David was a king in Israel. In fact, he is the king, the king that everyone throughout all of the scripture continually talks about as the model king. Uh, David uh, is before that, of course, a shepherd. And David is, of course, the guy uh, from the famous story that we all know who slays Goliath, right? And so that's who this is, who is uh, writing this psalm. So let's just jump in together uh, and uh, we'll walk through it. All right, you ready? Verse 1, Psalm 103, verse 1. Here's how he starts. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. You did, did you know we were singing scripture together as we sang that song? So verse 1 starts just the way, just what we sang earlier, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now this causes me to ask two questions. The first one is, what does it mean to bless the Lord? And the second one is, what's this thing called a soul, all right? So we know, I think, this idea of God blessing us. That seems familiar to us in some ways. We, we say, oh, when God blesses us, that means that God gives to us or gives to us way more than we deserve. I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. I just feel like this is one of God's blessings. So often we talk about that if you're a parent around our kids, right? Like we didn't go and pick this kid out, you know, out of a lineup, but God just blessed us with these children. And so we have this blessing from the Lord. No matter how um, that worked out in your particular family, I think all of us as parents go, man, this is just a blessing. We didn't know much about any of our kids until we received them, right? Blessing. But what does it mean for us then to bless God? Does that mean that we give God beyond what he deserves? Is that the, what that means? No, it actually means when we bless God, it means that we are giving to God exactly what he deserves, and so the idea, especially in the Psalms, is that blessing God is adoring or praising or trusting or obeying God. That's what it means to bless the Lord, that we see God for who he is and we attribute to him exactly what he deserves. That's why we as a church at Mercy Hill, that's why we gather and sing songs. We are blessing the Lord. We're saying, God, this is true about you. You deserve every word that comes out of my lips to be a word that praises you. Does it make sense? But what does it mean then when he says soul? All right. This is where we have to remember something. The Bible is written by people in a particular cultural context. Does that make sense? And so David is Jewish, 
living a few thousand years ago, completely different from here, United States today. Not only that, but the Bible is written to people in a context different from ours. Does that make sense? And so when David is writing Psalm 103, he's writing it based on his understanding from his cultural context to other people who are going to what? Understand exactly what he's talking about. So sometimes we have to do a little bit of work to understand certain words or phrases that we find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This is one of those times. When we think of the word soul, what we normally think of comes from more of a Greek influence rather than a Jewish influence. And in our Western culture today, it often means something like our essence, like a disembodied essence. Sometimes we'll use this phrase, the ghost in the machine, right? There's this middle of me or this essence of me that's kind of just running the physical thing, and my physical body is divorced from my soul. Uh, it's kind of like the movie Soul. Anybody see that movie? Man, what a fantastic movie. I love that movie. Soul is a Pixar movie that came out a couple years ago. Maybe you don't remember the premise, but Joe Gardner is a middle school band teacher who has great dreams of being a jazz musician. Finally, he gets an invitation to play in a famous jazz band on his way to the gig. He's so excited. He gets distracted. He walks into a manhole, falls in the sewer, and dies. Or the way he would phrase it is, his soul was accidentally removed from his body. And the rest of the movie, Joe Gardner's soul, which you can see a picture of right here, right? This does not look like a human body, right? Is trying to get reconnected with his body. It's a great movie, but the concept of the soul being taught in the movie is just different from the Hebrew concept of soul. Now, this is where it's helpful to use a Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word here is nephesh. I want you to see it. This is what it looks like. This Hebrew word actually means your entire self or your entire being. So rather than a disembodied part of you, this word, bless my soul, he's really, David is really saying, with everything that I have, I will bless the Lord. All of me, the sum total of me is my soul. Let me show you that. You're looking at me like you don't believe me. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. What happens in Genesis chapter 2? God creates people man and a woman, he breathes life into them. Check this out, verse seven. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the man became a living, see that word creature? You know what that word is? Nephesh, same word. And so the idea, the Hebrew idea in this passage is that God's breath is animating this entire or whole being, this entire person, and that is a soul. So guess what? You don't have a nephesh, you are a nephesh. Does that make sense? It's the whole of who you are. So that is then what David is saying here. May my entire being give to God what he deserves. May everything about me, not just my intentions, but my actions, not just my outward behavior, but my inward motivations, not just my feelings, I love God, but also my thoughts, so I spend time thinking and meditating on who God is. We divide often soul and the physical body or the spiritual and the physical. And we say things like, maybe my actions aren't really who I am. 
I'm really a kind person, what, at heart or in my soul, or I'm really a faithful person in my heart or in my soul, or we do it the opposite way. We, we would say our actions are all that we are, that what we do is important, not our motives, right? And so we would say like, hey, get off my back. I give money to the poor. I did a good deed, but never perhaps justifying or thinking about our motivation, right? So the Hebrew concept is this whole entire being. So it's not just that I'm generous, but I'm generous, not so I can brag about getting money away or so I can write it off on my taxes. I'm generous because at the heart of me, I'm generous and that influences my actions. Does this make sense to you? So here's what David is saying. Everything that you are, your entire being, your whole self, he's encouraging his entire self and us to praise God, to adore God, to give him glory, to trust and obey him. How? How do we do that? This is verse two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Here's what he says. The opposite of, of blessing the Lord, of giving God what he deserves, is forgetting about the Lord. So he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what I want to do is I want to remember. I want to remember all of his benefits or all of his blessings. I don't want to forget a single thing that God has given to me. And in remembering what God has done or given to me, then in return, I'm going to give praise and adoration and glory and honor back to him. So I give God what he deserves when I remember what he has done for me, his benefits or his blessings. So I don't forget it. I engage with God's blessings. Now, what are these benefits or blessings? Verse three through five. Let's check this out. He gives us some highlights. Verse three. So bless the Lord on my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who, this is God, forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here's what he's saying. Who forgives God. One of the benefits is he pardons us from our guilt. One of the benefits is he heals. God is a healer. One of the benefits is he redeems or rescues us from the pit. The idea there is from the grave that he crowns us or lavishes us with his never-ending love, that he satisfies us with good deeds, and then he replenishes or renews our strength. Now, some of you, no doubt, are hearing that list and going, what? Heals all of our diseases? Renews all of our strength, so I'm gonna like be very old, but actually be young? Is that what's going on here? This sounds like, maybe you're saying, Brandon, this kind of just sounds like religious mumbo-jumbo, right? Does this passage mean if I'm blessed by the Lord that I never get sick or I never get tired? And if I do get sick or tired, does that then mean that God's not worthy of praise? Is that what's going on here? Now remember, when we read the Bible, we read it in context, all right? So one of the things that's important when we read the Bible is we see that poetry is poetry, and so we read poetry like it's poetry. Does that make sense? It's important. It's really important. Because some of us grew up in traditions where we read the Bible like a reference book at all places. 
I experienced this one time when I was in college. I went to a debate between a uh, Christian creationist, old earth creationist, and an atheist skeptic. And one of the things that this creationist did is he quoted from the Psalms to prove scientific points. Now, those things might be true, right? Some of those things might be true, but the point of the Psalms is not to be a science textbook, it's poetry, and so we read it like poetry. Which means in poetry, we often use some inexact language to describe certain things, right? We do that in English, do it in Hebrew. Make sense? So that's one thing that's important to remember. Here's the second thing. We also know from the context this is David writing this. And we know from David's life that disease and death are not foreign to him. We know that he did get tired and he did die. And David is not looking around going like, I will never die, or I will never get sick, or I will never be tired. We know from the scripture those things are not true. Instead, what I think he has in mind is this kind of now and later idea about what God is going to do. There is, for the Hebrew people, this idea of resurrection all the way through the Hebrew Bible, this idea that God is blessing people in part now, and then will bless people fully later. And while it's fuzzy, not fully developed until we get to Jesus, this idea is God is going to, what David said, rescue him or deliver him or pull him out of the grave. And so he is saying here that while he'll sin here and now, he knows that he is forgiven now. And ultimately, when God resurrects him from the grave, he will be completely pardoned of his sin. He is saying while he might be healed of much of his maybe what we would call soul sickness now, greed, envy, and anger, and he might be healed physically at some point in this life, that he will be completely healed when his whole being is resurrected from the grave in the next life. Does that make sense? He, he's saying that he is going to die, but he will be redeemed or bought back from death by this God who blesses. That he will experience God's love in the here and now, but God will crown him lavishly with love and mercy beyond anything he can imagine one day. That he has been satisfied here and now in some ways by who God is, even as he's faced hardship, but he will be completely and utterly satisfied in God's goodness when he is redeemed from the grave. That he will find a spiritual and unexplainable vigor and strength at times in this life. And one day, God will completely renew his strength when he is resurrected. Does that all make sense? So that's this idea that David is talking about. Verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who, were, uh, who are oppressed. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people. So now, David is shifting gears a little bit. He's saying, I'm going to give God what he deserves because what he's done for me in my life, what he will do for me, and I'm going to give God what he deserves because I can look back at the history of my people and see how God has delivered or been faithful. So verse 6 and 7, he's saying, I know the story of Moses. I know my people were enslaved in Egypt, and I know God showed up and delivered them from their oppression. And so I'm going to give God what he deserves by remembering what he's done for me and by remembering what God has done historically, what God's done in history. 
Then, verse 8, he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, does this sound familiar at all, anybody? This is God's name. In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses is about to receive the Ten Commandments, it says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but for who will by no means but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the way God identifies himself to Moses. This is his name. And in fact, this is the way that God has revealed himself to us, and this is a thematic thread all the way through your Old Testament. This is quite possibly the most quoted verse. Every writer, not every writer, several writers in the Old Testament go back to this. How God has revealed himself to his people is this. This way, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When you want to know what God is like, this is the way God has revealed himself. That this is who he is. Now, this is uh, important because often we don't make this connection, especially in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Dane Ortland explains this passage, and he says that this is key for our understanding because the entirety of the Old Testament is God's deconstruction project that God is deconstructing who we naturally think him to be and replacing that or reconstruction, reconstructing who he is. That somehow, us as people, we tend toward this vision of God as not being loving or not being merciful or not being uh, gracious or not being kind that we tend toward this vision of God as being against us, not for us, someone we must prove ourselves to, not someone who steadfastly loves us. Dane says it this way. He says, this then is God's way of saying, there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. And so David, while he's mustering up this desire to bless or adore or give God what he deserves, is going back to God's revealed character, saying the reason you deserve it is because you are this kind of God. And I know some of you are like, hold up. The first part of what you read from Exodus sounds good, but there's these last couple of verses, Brandon, and you read them, and I didn't miss them, Right? What's going on in these verses? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? What's going on there, right? Here's what God wants you to know about himself. This is him revealing his heart to you. That you and your sin is not okay. Me and my sin is not okay. And there is some sort of way in which my sin is going to affect my son and his son. But don't miss what's going on. This is actually a comparison. You see the comparison? 
First, he says that his mercy and grace and love are going to be passed down for thousands of generations. Then he says he's not going to clear the guilty, and that's going to affect three or four generations. The effects of and the consequences of our sin will be passed down. My bad habits, my son is going to pick up. Just like you picked up bad habits from your family. I talk about this with couples in premarital counseling all the time. Your family of origin is always your default. It's just what our brains do. What we've seen modeled for us is what we drift towards. That's going to happen. But, but don't miss the comparison. His steadfast love is going to be passed down for generation after generation after generation to the thousands. Or in other words, his mercy and grace to you is going to overwhelm any judgment or consequences of sin so much. It's going to be unbelievable. Let me, let me maybe try this a different way. Um, so... Uh, I grew up in the 80s, uh, which means um, I have an affinity for prepackaged sweet things, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? So like Little Debbie, the, especially the Cosmic Brownies, like I just can't turn one of those down, right? And the other thing I love are Capri Suns. You guys remember Capri Suns? It's like the sugary water pack and you stab the straw in there, what inevitably happens when you stab the straw? If I had a Capri Sun in my hands right now, and I tried it in front of all of you, stab it with a straw, you know what it would do? I would shoot it all over my shirt. And that would be super embarrassing, right? And it wouldn't go away all day. There'd be a big red stain on my shirt. Everybody could see it. Now, but let's imagine, instead of being here, I was at the beach. And at the beach, right? I'm not wearing a shirt. Just me and my swim trunks, I stab my Capri Sun, right? I get Capri Sun all over me. What do I do? I just walk in the ocean. And the force of the waves would wipe away any remnant of that Capri Sun. Here's the picture in this passage. That God's love and mercy is infinitely more than the force of the ocean, and any sinfulness that has stained your family can be overwhelmed by his grace. And that is who God wants you to know that he is. That's why Moses says it, David repeats it over and over again. God, this is who he is. This is how he's revealed himself. And then... Maybe you're feeling like this. Maybe right now you're going, but that's not my experience. My experience right now is something different than that. So David addresses that, verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, nor does he deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. David just said, I know. I know it can feel like God at times is against you. I know it can feel like at times that God has abandoned you. I know you can feel forgotten. It is easy at times to think God is the problem. He doesn't love me like he loves other people. And then he says, I also know you might feel like this. You might feel like you're the problem. I know. 
David is saying that the weight of your sin or guilt can overwhelm you and pull you down. And you can feel like you're not worthy of that kind of love from God. And he says, but that's not forever. Not forever. That's not God's predominant disposition toward you. Instead, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so, does he, uh, so far does he remove our transgressions. That word just means willful sins against us. As far as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Here's what David says. This is who God is. This is his nature. The steadfast, merciful, gracious God is willing, ready, longing to forgive, completely pardoning you of any guilt. So much so, he's going to cast off your guilt and shame as far as it could possibly go. Whatever you conceive as the farthest place, that's where it's going. He forgives to the very uttermost. And, I love this, he has the heart of a father toward you. He wants to extend compassion toward you. And he has an understanding heart of a father. This is what he says. He knows we're just dust. He knows you are frail. I am frail. He knows you are imperfect. I'm imperfect. He knows that. And his heart or his disposition to us is one of compassion, patience, and understanding like a good father. Listen, as a dad, there are times when I have to discipline or punish my kids. Right? But that's not what I love. What I love and desire most is to extend compassion and understanding to my kids. And any time, any time when I am rightly disciplining my kids, because I'm frail, so I don't know if you guys know this, sometimes I get angry unjustly. Anytime I'm rightly extending discipline, I am actively loving my kids with compassion and understanding and patience. There's one thing we say at the Nichols house. I don't know if you've heard us talk about this before. I tell Hudson and Abby this all the time. My predominant goal as a parent is that my kids would not grow up to be morons. Right? And the reason is because I've met kids and young adults who are morons. No one here. Maybe. <laughs> and I'm terrified that my kids are going to grow up to be just total morons. And so I don't want them to be an idiot. I don't want Hudson to get fired from his first job because he doesn't know how to work. And so I'm going to punish him now when he doesn't do his chores because it doesn't count now, right? But it is going to count when he's 22 or 23 and he gets his first real job. Does that make sense? Okay. The point is this, that God, who he is, his identity, 
is that kind of loving, compassionate father towards you. Then, to drive the point home, David does another comparison. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over and is gone, and it knows its place no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children. But those who keep his covenant and remember to do his deeds. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Here's the comparison. David is comparing our finiteness or our frailty to God's infinite love. Does that make sense? That's the comparison between the two. I've been thinking a lot about this. That phrase, knows its place no more, kind of actually bothered me this week. And so I started thinking about my own family. And so I have a dad. His name is Marlon. He's an accountant uh, and tells really corny jokes, right? I don't know if you guys got a dad that tells corny jokes, but that's the kind of dad I got. His dad passed away a few years ago. His name was Joe. Joe grew up in southwest Georgia, right on the heels of the Great Depression, incredibly poor, His situation was complicated by the fact that his dad, so my great-granddad, is a guy named Eli. Now, I never met Eli. In fact, I didn't even know his name till this week when I had to text my dad and go, what was his name? I don't know his name. He wasn't really a part of my granddad's life, and he wasn't a part of my dad's life, and I obviously never knew him because Eli skipped out on his family, moved to Alabama, and then was killed in a logging accident. So he was never around. Now, here's the thing. Just a few generations. Remember what we talked about earlier, three or four generations. Three or four generations back, like, I don't even know who that guy is. The only thing I know about him is quite possibly the worst mistake of his life and the most tragic thing that ever happened in his life. That's all I know about. And that's not that long ago. So then I started freaking out. Because one day Hudson's going to grow up, and he's going to have a son, and I'll probably know him, right? If God is gracious to me, I'll know him. But then he's going to have a son, and chances are I might not ever know that person, and that person won't know my dad, and that person won't know Joe Nichols. So two of the most influential people in my life, my grandfather and my father, my sons, 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 will never even know. Their place will be gone. They won't even know that they existed. And then you go a couple of more generations, and guess what? Then no one remembers me anymore. And it's not like we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years. We're talking about decades. So here's what David says. Your finiteness is such a reality that your great-grandkids will probably never even know your name. But God's steadfast love and righteousness is poured out on the children's children. When everybody has forgotten you and me, God's steadfast love, his fatherly heart, his compassion and grace is going to continue infinitely. So, you and I have a choice. 2022. It's a simple choice, two choices. Choice, two options, two choices. One choice, two options. Choice number one, 
I can strive to get what I think I deserve. I could spend 2022 striving to get what I think I deserve. I could think that I deserve to be in the place of God. I could think that I deserve a promotion. I could think that I deserve more affection from a loved one. I could think, well, I, I could spend all of 2022 thinking about scheming how I could get what I feel like I deserve. Or I can follow the example of Psalm 103, and in 2022, I can give God what he deserves. And I could do that by remembering what he's done for me. And I could do that by remembering what he's done historically for his people. And I could do that by remembering who he is. And David, I think compelled by this choice. Am I going to make much of myself or am I going to make much of God? Then finishes in an amazing way, verse 20. He says, bless the Lord, all you his angels, the mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Here's what he just said. God's surrounded by spiritual beings called angels. Angels do God's bidding. And David's saying, this picture of who God is is so compelling. I'm about to tell these spiritual beings, these angels, what to do. And what they need to do is give God exactly what he deserves. He's not done. Then he says, verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in all his places of dominion. This is so compelling, David is saying, all of creation, everywhere that reflects God's handiwork should give him glory. And then he's not done. Then he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So all of heaven and all of earth and all of me should give to God exactly what he deserves. Now, when it comes to remembering what God's done for us, what God's done in history, and who God is, we have an advantage over David. And our advantage is we know the whole story of the Bible, of the Scripture. And while we might be confused at times about the way everything fits into our lives, we can look to Jesus and we can say, oh, I know the way that God has blessed me the most. It's by Jesus. And so I can remember what God has done for me through Jesus. That God sent his own son to die on a cross for me in my place. That in Christ, God has taken all of my sin and iniquity and put it on his son. That I have been adopted into the family of God. Not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus is. Jesus and I can look at what God did in history at an event, at Jesus' death and resurrection, and I can go, that's what God does. Jesus, his cross and his resurrection. And then the other advantage that you and I have is that we, by looking at Jesus, the full revelation of who God is, can know God's character, who he is. We don't have to guess about who God is or what he's like. We look to Jesus. And so you and I, 2022, we can make this choice to give God what he deserves when we remember that through Jesus, he has given us more than we deserve. That God has blessed us through Christ. It's what he's done for us. It's what he's done for history, who he is. So two implications as we get ready to wrap up today quickly. First, don't forget 
opposite of blessing the Lord doesn't seem to be cursing the Lord. It seems to be forgetting about the Lord and what he's done. And so this could be a year where we don't forget, where we spend time, like David in this psalm, reflecting on how God has been good to us. If we're struggling, we look back in history, see what God's done in history. We look with confidence to God's character. We can ask questions like, how has God been good to me? How has God been good to me in the past? How has God been good to his people in the past? How has God displayed to me who he is? And that act of reflection becomes then an act of worship. We can also not forget by spending time in the scripture. Remember how I said earlier, we often use the Bible as a reference book, textbook? Your Bible's actually not designed for you to think of a topic, look in the concordance, find verses about the topic, and then go with the one that you think fits your predetermined idea the best. It's not really what it's designed to do. And and we can use the Bible as a reference book and cite certain verses and that sort of thing, and uh, sometimes we get pretty close to the idea. What the Bible's designed to do is to point you to Jesus. And so when we read the Bible, what we're reading is this section today of this bigger story, and this section of this bigger story points me to who Jesus is or helps me not forget God's benefits or blessing. Does that make sense? So in this way, the Bible is about a Messiah, Jesus, and it's it's supposed to cause us to meditate or to think. So 2022 could be the year where where maybe you stop like the chopped up Bible reading plan or you stop the like chasing to find verses that defend just your own position and maybe just start reading the Bible the way it was designed to be. A unified story that points to Jesus and helps you in your daily life by helping you recapture or remember who, who God is, what he's done, what he's done in history. Does that make sense? So this week, we'll send out some more resources. We'd love for you to start a Bible reading plan and help your understanding of this whole story of the Bible. We'll send out some resources in the email this week, all right? This is fuel for our worship. Finally, one of the things that we do consistently together as a church and as the church is we remember who Jesus is and what he's done by observing the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to actually move into that time right now where we observe the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you, Psalm 103 is what we're doing. It's what Jesus says, right? Practice this, do this until I return. Remember who I am and what I've done. And so this year, man, we want you to reflect, think about what God's done in your life and history, who he is. And we hope in 2022 you engage with the scripture in a way that points you to worship. And then right now, together as a church, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, which is actively remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. We giving to God what he deserves because he's given to us through Jesus exactly what we did not deserve.